Welcome to the Wealth Actually podcast with Fraser Rice. Today we have Jonathan Clements on. Jonathan is the founder and editor of HumbleDollar.com. He's also the author of eight personal finance books, including his latest, From Here to Financial Happiness. Born in England and educated at Cambridge University, Jonathan spent almost two decades at the Wall Street Journal in New York. He's also worked for six years at Citigroup as the Director of Financial Education for the U.S. Wealth Management Business. Welcome aboard, Jonathan. Hey, it's great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into the realm of uh, writing about finance? And, and in another sense, how did you get to the point where you thought about helping people generally through your blog and through your new book? So when I got out of university in England in 1985, I went to work in London for an international finance magazine called Euromoney. Uh, pretty quickly, I discovered that the... Uh, Standard of living for rookie reporters in London was pretty much terrible. <laughs> Moved to New York, immediately doubled my standard of living. I worked for Forbes magazine for three years. Then I was hired away by the Wall Street Journal. And I did an initial stint of more than 18 years at the Journal. Um, and then, you know, after having written a, a, a column for most of that period, or uh, twice a week, um, I was a little burned out. And Citigroup came calling. So I went to work for Citigroup for six years, where I was director of financial education for their U.S. wealth management business. And it really got, gave me the chance to see the money management business from another angle. I was no longer just an ink-stained wretch. I was instead there in the trenches. And it was a great education for me. Um, after, but six years was enough of an education. I left. I returned to the journal briefly freelance for some other publications, but for much of the past few years, I've been focused on writing books and my own website, which is called HumbleDollar.com. When you're just starting out, where did you get the financial chops? When you cover a lot of different things, it's tough to be an expert at everything. How did you go about being prepared? Obviously, a lot of research, but was there any training in your schooling, or is that just something you pick up as you talk to a lot of people and sort of synthesize those concepts? terrible admission, but I was just simply a nerd. <laughs> uh, I became fascinated by economics when I was age 16, and uh, I read everything the school library had to offer. I initially studied economics when I was at Cambridge, and then when I got into journalism, I made it a point of reading everything I'd get my hands on. In particular, when I was at Forbes magazine, they had a tremendous library, and it gave me a chance to read all of the investment classics. And, of course, one of the great things about being a journalist is that you get to spend your time talking to smart people and simply talking to some of the great investors out there was an opportunity to get an education. Somebody once described working at Forbes magazine as, as the best and cheapest MBA you're ever going to get. <laughs> exactly. In my life, when I was a lawyer, or I guess I still am a lawyer but don't practice, and when I started to work at Wealth Management, I, I knew a little bit about investing, but I ended up hanging out with all the portfolio managers, and, and that was my education. I just watched and learned, and then when they had to explain things to clients and when people were complaining about this, that, or the other thing, you, you just learn quickly how it all works. That's the way. If you ask good questions and actually listen rather than preferring to hear your own voice, it's amazing what you can learn. No question about that. Okay, so From Here to Financial Happiness, your new book. What was the impetus for writing it, and where did the need for this book come from? So this is my eighth book 
about personal finance, and you would think at this point that I'd said pretty much everything <laughs> I have to say. But, uh, but this book did come from a unique place, and I, I really feel it's the most practical book that I've done. I mean, part of it reflected what I learned while I was at Citigroup. When I was at Citigroup, I spent a lot of time with financial advisors and with the clerks who work in the bank and talking to them about how to talk to clients. And one of the key ways to talk to clients is simply to ask questions and listen. So in the, the aftermath of my time at Citigroup, I actually started work on a book that I never published that was devoted to questions you want to ask in order to uncover what you really want from your financial life and to find out what sort of financial condition you're in. So I had that book going on. And then I, separately, I'd been putting together a slew of short, pithy uh, financial insights, many of which I've put out on Twitter, and I had been thinking about that as a second book. And then third, you know, I had been trying to put together a step-by-step plan for getting started in the financial market. And one day, you know, my wife sort of said to me, I said, well, couldn't you just put them all together and make them one book? <laughs> and that's how from here, from here to Financial Happiness started. So what it's designed to be is a 77-day plan that helps you figure out where you stand, where you want to go with your financial life, and what steps you ought to take. And to me, it's very much like the book version of the conversation you ought to have with a really good financial advisor. That is what a good financial advisor should do. They should help you figure out where you stand, what you want, and what steps you ought to take next. And I think if people take the time to work through the book, they'll have an experience that maybe isn't quite as good as sitting down with their top-notch financial advisor, but I'm hoping it comes at least moderately close. In my book, I did somewhat a similar thing where I tried to equip people with some of the acumen to spot the issues that they need to spot. And one of the things that I was impressed with your book was not only the structure of the book, but your ability to take very complicated concepts and break them down into digestible forms. And I guess part of that, how did you decide on the structure? You know, there are plenty of ways you could have gone through it as it related to, you know, you have big, long chapters explaining what the power of compounding is or other concepts, but the, but the short, pithy 77 days makes it digestible. How did you come up with that? Well, initially, I sat down and I tried to figure out what steps you needed to take in order to, to get through that three-step process, you know, where I stand, what I want, what I need to do next. And my initial goal was to have 101 days. I thought 101 would be a cool number. But I got through drafting the book, and I was at day 78. And I was like, day 78? There's nothing particularly special about day 78. You know, if you're a journalist, you know the difference between a dull number and what's called a sharp number. And a sharp number is normally an odd number. Odd numbers resonate in a way that even numbers do not. So I was like, I'm not doing 78. We're going to compress two days into one and make it 77 days to a richer <laughs> life. So that's how I ended up with 77 days. But what the book's trying to do is twofold. And again, this is what you should be expecting from a really good financial advice, which is not simply being educated about your finances, but also being pushed to change. And I think that's the missing element in so many books out there, and indeed in so much financial education. You know, if you have something called the internet and you call up something called Google, you can learn everything you need to know about any particular financial topic. It's not that complicated. The really complicated part is getting yourself to do it. This is where 
a good financial advisor can be hugely helpful. They can help with behavior change. But to get a really good financial advisor, you know, you probably need half a million dollars. Maybe you'll be able to find one for $250,000 in assets to have managed, but you know, probably half a million dollars minimum to find a really good financial advisor. If you don't have that, then how are you going to get yourself to change? And I think there are two components that I try to draw on in my book. First is visualization. You know, we have this constant battle between our current selves and our future selves. It's the things we want today and the things we need to do in order to have a better future. And let's face it, our poor, wretched future selves forever are getting shafted. We, we, <laughs> we pay... We are so kind to our current selves and so awful to our future selves. So one way you can tilt the odds back in favor of your future self is to visualize all these things you want. What does a better financial life look like? What does retirement look like? What are the goals that you really care about? What sort of house do you want to buy? What college do you want your kids to go to? And so on. If you start to think about these questions and what would make your life happier, then you'll be willing to make those short-term sacrifices. So that's one element of behavior change. And the other is simply writing down what it is you need to do. And in the book, there's plenty of space for people to write down the steps they need to take next. And by writing them down, you're making a commitment to yourself that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So between the visualization and the commitments, I'm hoping that this book will help people to change their behavior. One of the sections that I really liked is how you dealt with uh, saving for retirement, where counterintuitively, since it seems like a liability that's pretty far out there, you could save for it later. But in actuality, you say that's the first thing you should save for. And I completely agree with that. How did you come to that realization? I mean, it's it seems obvious for, I guess, people in the know and professionals and so on. But guiding around that, I, I tell people that you need to have the asset base in retirement once you're done working, once your income streams become limited to be able to live off of, and, and it's a message that's difficult to drill home. Yeah, chronologically, retirement may be the last of our goals. Retirement is hugely expensive, hugely expensive. In many parts of this country, you, know, you can buy a very nice house for $250,000, $300,000. You, know, you can get your kids educated at a decent state university for $100,000. But retirement a decent retirement is likely to cost you a million dollars or more. It just takes decades and decades of diligent savings and investment compounding in order to hit that number. So that's reason number one. But the second reason is that retirement isn't optional. You don't have to own a nice house. You don't have to pay for your kid's college education. But one day, almost all of us are going to have to retire. And at that point, we're going to need a great heaping pile of dollar bills in order to live comfortably. So... If retirement isn't optional, if you're going to have to do it one of these days, you better make it a priority. Uh, no question. One of the real effective sections of your book deals with the power of compounding. And, and I've gotten on my soapbox when I've been interviewed on certain podcasts, etc., saying that the power of compounding, both for the positive and the negative, it's a concept that has to be taught earlier and earlier. Where do you stand on that? You, you devote, I, I think it's at least one section specifically toward it, and you allude to it a lot. How important is it for the audience to understand what that is and how powerful it is? Yeah, I mean, you're, there's no doubt about it, Fraser. I mean, this is a concept that is hugely important and unfortunately is not well understood. When I left Citigroup, one of the things I did in the years immediately afterwards was I taught personal finance at the college level. And so I walked into the classroom on the first day full of enthusiasm and ideas, 
And the concept I wanted to teach on day one was compounding. And so I started to explain compounding, you know, and how the math works. If you get have 10% this year and 10% next year, your two-year cumulative gain isn't 20%, but 21%. And I looked out across the classroom, and kids looked absolutely befuddled. I taught this class for 15 weeks. Every week, <laughs> I ended up teaching compounding. And by the end of the semester, I think half the kids understood it. But compounding is crucial to understand because it's the leverage that makes it possible to accumulate that million dollars for retirement. If you get into the workforce and you start saving regularly and you put that money into a diversified stock portfolio so you get healthy annual investment gains, it is possible to accumulate large sums. But it's also a key notion when it comes to borrowing. You know, one of the tragedies of credit card debt isn't simply that it costs you 20% a year in many cases, but two, if people carry a balance, the total amount owed grows exponentially over time. And credit card debt can just be so costly. And whatever you bought with that money, it can easily end up costing you twice or more by the time you paid off the credit card bill. And dovetailed around that is the fact that student loan debt, it's the same thing in a sense. The interest rate tends to be a lot lower, but there are a lot of people who are making big mistakes as it relates to student loans, mostly as it relates to the choices they make with it. Uh, I tell people all the time that it's one thing to borrow to finance one's future development, and I would never tell anybody not to do that, but but to go and, and not put some forethought into, into what you're investing in to make yourself better and to increase your earning capacity, I think that's one of the real tragedies that's that's going to hit America hard in the coming decades. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think in many cases, parents are missing in action. They let kids make these choices of college and the related amount of debt they're going to need to take on without any sort of guidance. I mean, the fact is, yeah, if you're going to go off and you're going to be an investment banker, sure, it doesn't matter that you take on tens and tens of thousands of dollars of debt because you're going to be able to service those loans. But if you're going to be a social worker or, you know, God forbid, a journalist, (laughs) (laughs) you cannot afford to take on that sort of debt because you'll spend the years that follow bitterly regretting the amount of money that you owe. It simply isn't sustainable to take on tens and tens of thousands of debt and then go and become some ink-stained wretch at a local newspaper. Harkening back to the Citigroup days, as you try to teach financial discipline to people who are coming from a world where they didn't really have it before, whether they're teenagers or even people who have liquidity events and they're going from one type of wealth to another, what's worked or not worked uh, in your experience? That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, if people haven't developed good financial habits by the time they enter the adult world, you know, it's really hard to get straight. I mean, again, this is an area where parents are crucially important. Parents have to somehow teach their kids to delay gratification. And if they don't, then, you know, the education is going to occur in the real world. And you know, with any luck, those lean years through the 20s, when kids suddenly have to make do and, you know, live in tiny apartments and pay the bills, will teach them how to manage money. But if those two things don't work, then, you know, I, just, I fear that many people will just have a lifetime of financial struggle it's because it is so hard to get out of the day-to-day and focus on the future. And that's what you need to do if you're going to be responsible about managing money. You need to care a little bit less about your current self and a lot more about your future self. 
Right. Well, speaking of future selves, as it relates to estate planning, I I worked with a lot of one percenters and so on who had some notion of how important it was to have your affairs in order as you shuffle off the mortal coil. (laughs) Uh, What what have you seen as it relates to your experiences that that underscores that importance? Well, obviously, the stats are, are grim. I mean, survey after survey shows that more than half of Americans don't have a will. Um, it's the most basic estate planning document. In fact, for most people, estate planning is really pretty simple. Beyond having your affairs well organized, you know, what do you need to do? Well, you should, you should have a will. You should have the right beneficiary designations on any life insurance that you have and on any uh, retirement accounts that you have. If you've done those things, organized your estate, got a will, got the right beneficiaries on your retirement accounts, on your life insurance, you're most of the way there. For most people, you know, estate planning sounds complicated, and for some, for the super wealthy, it is. But issues like estate taxes, federal estate taxes are a non-issue for 99.9% of people. I talk to people about estate planning, the first thing they bring up is taxes. It's like, you don't have to worry about taxes. Unless you're a whole lot richer than your holy genes suggest, <laughs> you're not going to be paying federal estate taxes. One of the things that uh, concerns me going forward as we start talking about end-of-life planning is really the last six months or a year that most people live where they're either in a home or uh, have some sort of assisted living set up. And long-term care to me is one of these much like retirement or a subset of retirement, it's one of these expenses that I visualize it and it's just cloudy and big. And it's one of those scenarios that I I have trouble getting my arms around. And it's one of those areas that the long-term care insurance world doesn't make easier. What has your experience been around that? Unfortunately, long-term care insurance has been a disaster. I mean, we all know that. We've had insurers come in and out of the market. They've mispriced the policies. Policyholders have been hit with huge premium increases. It's very hard to recommend straight up long-term care insurance because it hasn't been a good product. I mean, I can't tell you for how many emails I've had from people talking about how you know the premiums on their policies have been jacked up. They thought they had done the right thing, and now they have this policy they simply cannot afford. And the question is, you know, what is the alternative? And the alternatives are not great. I mean, if you have, you know, relatively little in assets, then you can just assume that you're going to fall back on Medicaid and you, you may end up in a nursing home that you don't particularly like. If you have, you know, substantially over a million dollars um, in assets, you know, you can think about self-insuring. But for the people in the middle, these are the people who need long-term care insurance and straight up long-term care insurance doesn't seem to be a good solution. So you probably want to look at other alternatives. One of the sections that I looked at, and I guess I had a little bit of friendly debate with, was the idea of whole life insurance, which I, as a general rule, don't think is a terrific idea. But in terms of acting as a proxy for long-term care insurance, I'm starting to think a little more positively on it. What are your thoughts on that? The fact that you can get a whole life policy with a long-term care insurance rider is, is an interesting option. But I would investigate not that, but instead looking at income annuities that have a long-term care insurance rider. My thinking is this. You know, when you're retired, what's the big risk? 
the big risk isn't dying, at least not the big financial risk. Instead, the big financial risk is outliving your money. Right. And so if you buy an immediate annuity that's paying you lifetime income, that helps with that longevity risk. And if it has a long-term care insurance rider, then it can also help with the nursing home risk. By contrast, if you have a whole life policy, sure, I mean, if you die, it's nice that your family's going to get a payout, but dying suddenly is not the big issue at that point. It's not the big risk. The big financial risk is living longer than you ever imagined. And that's why the annuity and potentially the annuity with the long-term care insurance rider is an interesting option. Interesting. Let's steer this back a little bit to something you covered before, which is having an effective advisor. For people out there, what should they expect an advisor to add in terms of value and advice? My opinion is that the value that an advisor can add on the portfolio side is relatively limited. If you go to a financial advisor and you imagine that advisor is going to help you to outperform the market averages, pick winning stocks, pick winning mutual funds, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Instead, on the investment side, I think the best that you can hope from a good financial advisor is that they will help you settle on an asset allocation. That means basic mix of stocks and bonds that's right for your situation, your tolerance for risk, and then execute it using low-cost index funds. But you know that's, that's not the area where a good advisor can really add value. Instead, a good advisor can add value by looking at the rest of your financial life and specifically what estate planning documents you need, what sort of insurance should you have, you know, do you have a financial plan, you know, are you managing your finances for maximum tax efficiency? Are you thinking about issues like asset protection? These are all areas where a good financial advisor can add substantial value. No, it's not about beating the S&P 500 by three percentage points this year. That's a goal that's likely to remain elusive. But improving these various other aspects of your financial life, they could be hugely helpful. And yet, Many financial advisors don't really focus on that stuff. Uh, I completely agree. I tell people when they say, you know, why am I paying an account level fee for this? And I say, well, because you're paying an account level fee to act as a sounding board and a way for you to instill discipline around your financial condition. And when life intervenes, when you have, you know, births, marriages, deaths, sale of business, divorce, lots of other things, your plan is fluid. And you need someone at the other end of the phone to help you talk through that because the dynamics are going to change and and ultimately your plan has to change. Absolutely. You know, as we've sort of said a couple of times during this conversation, managing money for the most part is pretty simple, but it's not easy. And all of these issues arise You know, people get overly self-confident or overly nervous. They want to make rash, impulsive decisions. And a good financial advisor, like a good friend or a good spouse, can help to keep you in check. So as we think about the advisory world and the state of the wealth management industry, what are some bumps on the street and the path going to be in that world? I I look at it and I say, geez, you know, the business model is changing. Uh, What we've talked about that we think an advisor can do as it relates to adding value to people's lives, it's very time consuming. It's a lot of work. And sometimes it's tough to sort of articulate what the value is and get people to pay for it. What do you see as as the wealth management starts to deal with fee compression and technological hurdles and or opportunities in the world going forward? Well, as an investor, for everyday Americans, 
the financial world, in many ways, has become a far friendlier place over the last 20 years. I mean, you think about what has happened to investment fees. I mean, commissions have come down. Uh, trading spreads on stocks and bonds have tightened. Uh, mutual fund fees have come down. You know, you can now put together a great globally diversified portfolio of index funds and pay less than 0.1% a year. 0.1% a year. What we're talking about is less than 10 cents a year for every $100 you have under management. I mean, that's extraordinary. You know, everyday Americans today can invest at a price that was only available to the biggest institutional investors 20 years ago. So that's been great news. But even as we've seen the cost of investing go down, financial advisory fees really remained remarkably constant. Many financial advisors continue to charge 1% a year, and many charge 1% a year, and all they're doing is portfolio management. Well, we've seen that model come under threat, under assault, from these robo-advisors who are also offering portfolio management, but they're only charging 0.25%. They're charging quarter as much. So if you're a financial advisor, and you're dealing with Americans and you want to be competitive, you, know, you have two choices. You can either cut your fee or you can offer more services or maybe some combination of the two. And I think either people are going to have to do that or they're going to lose business. One of the things I noted in my book is I tell people to evaluate the effectiveness of an advisor on an after-tax, after-fee, and after-inflation basis, meaning are you maintaining your spending power over the long haul? And the the contradiction or the thing that I find interesting is that wealth managers have a real tough time framing things in these terms. Uh, what is your sense? Uh, well, we all love the money illusion phrase there. I mean, wouldn't you rather be told that you made 10% rather than be told that you made 2.5% two, two after inflation and taxes and fees? I mean, it's, it's grim when you start to put it that way, but that is indeed the number that you should be looking at because – if you're a long-term investor, what you care about is making your money grow after those big three subtractions are taken out, these taxes and inflation. But just doesn't sound as good or as hopeful, and I think that's why financial advisors don't use that number, and it's why investors don't use that number. They actually don't want to face reality. It could be a scary thing. It's like a bad horror movie when you know the killer is around the corner. <laughs> So one of the things that I really like uh, in your blog, which I'm a recent reader of, but now I'm going back and looking at a lot of the older entries that you have, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. I find that the investing and the general financial literacy of the public needs a lot of help. What do you think we can do as a country to help people make better decisions? I think teaching personal finance at the high school level, which doesn't happen at many schools currently, teaching personal finance at the high school level would be a great start. But it has to be taught the right way. You know, we don't want kids playing the stock market game where they pick one stock and see who makes the most money over the next three months. I mean, that's the worst possible lesson. You know, what we need kids to learn is the dangers of credit card debt, you know, the risk in taking on a lot of college loans, the importance of signing up for your company's 401k plan as soon as you get into the workforce. These are the sort of lessons that kids need to learn, and currently they aren't, but they are crucially important. 
the fact is, you know, it doesn't take much to succeed financially. You don't need to be a great investor. You don't have to find the cheapest investment products. But what you do need is you need good savings habits and you need time. And if we can somehow reach people early enough in their lives so they appreciate the importance of saving and the importance of saving from an early age so they enjoy not only years of saving but also years of investment compounding, we would hugely improve the financial condition of the American public. Well, your book, From Here to Financial Happiness, would be the cornerstone of any good curriculum on that. I think it does a great job of articulating a lot of those concepts, and more importantly, it provides that structure to help people think about things. Uh, I would I would recommend it to any high schooler, even if even it might not necessarily be, uh, uh, you know, comic book reading. Uh, I think it would be really helpful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the show, Jonathan. How do we get a hold of From Here to Financial Happiness? So From Here to Financial Happiness is available through Amazon. It's available through Barnes & Noble. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the book and read some of my other material, head to HumbleDollar.com. There's a tab devoted to my various books. And even if you don't buy the books, check out the blogs. They're there to be read for free. And there's something new up on the site every day. Terrific. And, And how do we follow you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Clements Money, and on Facebook, I have a page called Jonathan Clements Money Guide. And if you go there, you'll find a pretty vigorous conversation going on almost every day of the week. (laughs) Terrific. Jonathan, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Jonathan Clements on the Wealth Actually podcast. You can find past episodes and links to the book Wealth Actually on wealthactually.com. I'm your host, Fraser Rice. And until the next time, keep making intelligent decisions about your wealth.